Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. We want to look at and continue on our chronological journey through the Gospels. And we began the beginning of last year just, for me, trying to mesh the Gospels together um, as they would unfold chronologically. Today, we are going to find ourselves largely in the Gospel of Mark, but we will pick up one verse from Matthew, and that'll be in our first point. But we're going to start in Mark. Because Matthew kind of picks up the rest of the account, uh, that which Mark doesn't pick up. So we're going to begin in Mark chapter 6, verse 12. And then um, we're going to look at the beheading of John the Baptist. Now in the third point, I just kind of uh, took everything that Scripture said about John the Baptist. And it's rather long, and hopefully we can get through it. I think I had like 36 or 39 things that uh, be like John. I think that in many ways we can be like John the Baptist. And I want to point that out in our third point, just by kind of reviewing all the things that we've already studied about John the Baptist. In our text today, we're going to learn a lot about Herod the Great, but not necessarily John the Baptist. He'll be beheaded and put to death. And we'll learn a little bit about him in the closing of his life here, but largely it gives the account of his beheading. And so for the last two weeks, we've been looking at Jesus preparing his disciples to go out two by two on a short-term missionary journey. They were to go out two by two. He empowered them with the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, to heal the sick. And we'll learn today that they were anointing the sick with oil. And so we didn't read about that previously. And so again, as you kind of continue to combine the accounts of the gospel, we kind of add layers to the work that Jesus is doing through his apostles. And we've been learning about even what they were to preach. They were to preach the gospel of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. While all this was going on, Herod Antipas was having a birthday celebration and this party went really bad. It cost the life of John the Baptist. And we're going to look at that today in the account of John the Baptist being beheaded because of just something that Herod the Great said that he should not have said. And then he felt obligated to hold to his word. Sometimes you might say something and you just maybe need to eat it and say, you know what, I shouldn't have said that. And don't worry about how it might make you look because the outcome could be that much worse if you choose to kind of hold to your commitment. And so we're going to learn a little bit about that today and learn about this unique servant of God John the Baptist. So I titled this The Beheading of John the Baptist. We have three points today. The 12 went out, and we begin in Mark 6, verse 12, in that point. 
Next, we'll look at the death of John the baptizer, Mark 6, 14 through 29. And then a third point that be like John. And we're going to look at, I believe I have like 39 little bullet points of things that John did. And I think many of these things we can do as well. And so we begin in Mark 6, verse 12. And so they went out and preached that people should repent. So we've already learned in the Gospels of John the Baptist and then Jesus going out and preaching this message. And this comes from Matthew 3, verse 2, Matthew 4, verse 17. Uh, The first verse refers to John the Baptist. The second refers to Jesus. But it says the very same thing. The message of John the Baptist, the message of Jesus was repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And now we learn the disciples, even though they don't give us the words that they spoke, repentance was part of that message. They preached that the people should repent. So I believe they were preaching the very same message. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The word of God tells us today that it is necessary for repentance. Second Corinthians 7.10, we're going to use this verse twice in this message today. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's a lot of people that come into churches and sometimes they come into a fellowship or church and, and they are sorry for the things that they have done. But they're sorry to the point that they know they need to change their life, but they don't come to that place of actually asking God to forgive them of their sin, of coming to that place to where they ask in repentance, saying, Lord, I'm wrong. I know I've done wrong. I am sorry. That godly sorrow sorrow is necessary for repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. So there is truly a sorrow of this world. There was a commercial many years ago that uh, talked about being sorry. But, you know, to say sorry and to not actually mean it, godly sorrow produces repentance, meaning that there's a change of direction, that you can tell that the repentance was true because there was a course change in that person's life. And so they're preaching the necessity of repentance. And they're also, in verse 13, we see the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit. They were casting out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. So first the 12 went out and did just as Jesus instructed them to do, being empowered with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also empowered with the Holy Spirit to cast out demons. Now, according to prophecy from the book of Daniel, at the time of Jesus' first coming, there was a heightened expectation of the Lord's coming, the Messiah. All the Jews knew that according to Daniel, that there was a timeline from the time that the command went forth to restore and build, rebuild Jerusalem from that time 
will be 77s or 483 years, that they were counting the day of the Messiah's coming. And so I believe that there was this heightened expectation of the Messiah's coming. They didn't know who the Messiah was going to be, but there was this heightened expectation of the anointed one coming. But I also believe that there was a heightened activity of demonic activity at that same time. I believe today that there is heightened demonic activity going on in our world, in our country today. Even those, and I've said this a few weeks ago and in our prophecy update last month, um, I'd mentioned it as well, that there are those who have been agnostics. Uh, wait a minute, they've been atheists, and now they're agnostics. They're, they're moving closer. So an atheist means that I do not believe that there is a God, anti-God. Agnostics would say that perhaps there is a God, but God cannot be known. So there's atheists in the last two years have moved to say that right now I'm agnostic. They're saying that basically something spiritual is going on. And when they're saying something spiritual is going on, they realize that there is a, a bad spirit going on in our nation, the influence of demonic realm. And again, we can read in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, of Daniel setting apart a season of prayer to pray for 21 days. And we read the backdrop of that praying. When the angel Gabriel came to him, he said, I was doing battle. The moment that you set in your heart to pray, the Lord sent me to you, but I battled with the prince of Persia. And if it wasn't for Michael, I wouldn't even be here now. So it's, I'm assuming it was Gabriel at that point. It may have been an unnamed angel. I know that Michael was named in that passage, but the angel that came to Gabriel, came to Daniel, said, if it wasn't for Michael, I wouldn't even be here now. So uh, the angel that was battling the prince of Persia, he said, I need some help here. And so there was this spiritual war going on. And we realize that we battle against the prince and the power of this world, that there are demonic forces that have dominion over certain areas of this world, certain countries. And even non-believers are saying something spiritual is going on here. Today, medical science might simply say, just take some drugs when in reality there's something spiritual going on. So I believe that there is demonic possession to this day. We often read about it in Scripture. I believe that it was heightened at the period of the Lord's first coming, and I believe it will be heightened at the time of the Lord's second coming, and we might be in those days right now. According to the Word of God, the demons are fallen angels from Revelation 12, 3. It says, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. When he came, he f fell, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And so talking about the fall of Satan, that great fiery red dragon, when he went out of heaven, his tail 
drew a third of the angels with him, cast them to the earth. The word of God tells us in Second Peter 2, 4, that God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, delivered them in chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And Jude 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So some of the demons had been cast into hell. They're chained there even now waiting for the day of judgment. But others, and I don't know how God, this is his territory, but some are so bad that he just chained them away. But others he allowed to roam like we learned about the man who the demons in him, when Jesus said, what is your name? He was talking to the demons. The demons responded, legion, because we are many. And in Luke 8, 31, we studied this just maybe a month ago. These demons who called themselves legion, they begged Jesus not to command them to go to the abyss. And Jesus allowed them to enter a herd of swine instead. But some are allowed to be on this earth. But know that the Lord has given us victory over the demonic realm. I believe that if Jesus is in us, demons cannot possess the true believer in Jesus Christ. Demons can um, oppress us. They can trouble us. That's for sure. But if Christ is in, Satan is out. So let not your heart be troubled in that sense. Because the disciples, when they came back from this short-term missionary journey, they would report to Jesus and in amazement in Luke 10, 17, they would say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. But they are also anointing the sick with oil. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, kings were anointed with oil for their service to God, the tabernacle, uh, the furnishings of the tabernacle were all anointed with the holy anointing oil in the new testament jesus was anointed with oil by mary magdalene to prepare him for his burial but we only find three times where oil is used connection in connection with the sick here it's mentioned in luke 6 13 they anointed with oil many who were sick and they were healed and also we learn of the Good Samaritan when he uh, took this guy with his wounds. He anointed him with oil. He used oil as an ointment of healing for him. I'm not saying that he used it in a spiritual way, but oil was used in connection to someone who was sick. And then James in James 5.14. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So oil signifies the work of the Holy Spirit and his healing work in a person's life. Therefore, the idea of the anointing with oil and the prayer for the sick is a biblical thing that we should practice to this day. So Luke 9, 6 tells us that the disciples departed. They went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. But Matthew 11:1 1 tells us after they departed Jesus, 
Matthew 11:1. 1, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So Jesus sent out the 12, two by two, to proclaim the gospel to the lost sheep of Israel, to the house of Israel, to cast out demons, to anoint with oil, to heal the sick. And Jesus came following behind, preaching the gospel in teaching in every city. So as Jesus went forth, he continually showed signs that he was, that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, a passage that he read in the synagogue there in Nazareth. And we read about it in Luke 4 verses 18 through 21, where the Lord took the scroll and sat down and then read from the scroll, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In verse 20 it says, Then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of those who were in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So as Jesus went forth to teach and preach in the cities of the Galilee is where they were at at this time. He was showing them the signs and teaching them that he truly was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. He was anointed by the Spirit of God to preach the gospel, to heal, heal the brokenhearted, to liberate the captives and the oppressed to give sight to the blind to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and today Jesus continues to do these same things through his servants having empowered us like he empowered his disciples he has empowered us to continue on in the work that he has given us to do in Luke 24:46 through 49 right before Jesus ascended into heaven He said to his disciples, and this is beyond the 12 now. He says, thus is written, and it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And that is the filling of the Holy Spirit that God promised to the church. And the Lord has given us the gifting of the Holy Spirit to go forth. And therefore, we've been called to preach repentance through faith in Jesus Christ to all nations in the day and age that we live in. We come to the death of John the baptizer. In Mark 6, 14 through 29, we begin just want to give a little history update of Herod. And we begin in verse 14, just the very beginning of that. Now King Herod heard of him. Now there's several Herods mentioned in scripture. We've already met Herod the Great, but now we are looking at one of his sons, Herod Antipas. And he actually ruled over Judea, this area of Judea. Technically, 
he wasn't the king over Judea. That wasn't part of his dominion. He was called Herod the Tetrarch because he only had a quarter of his father's kingdom, Herod the Great. And that quarter of that kingdom included the Galilee and Perea. But he ruled in that area from 4 BC, the death of his father, until 39 AD. And he was sly. He was ruthless. He was not the capable leader of his father. Jesus called him in Luke 13, 32, that fox. You think about a sly fox. When the Pharisees brought word to Jesus that Herod was seeking to kill him, he called him a fox. And this Herod is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded and is the one before whom Jesus stood in judgment, although Jesus did not speak a word to him. In Mark 6, picking up in verse 14 again, but 14 and 15, now Herod heard of him, heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. Therefore, these powers are at work in, in him. And others said, it's Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. So here we have various opinions concerning Jesus. The first opinion was given by Herod Antipas, who said, this is John the Baptist who has risen from the dead. So Mark first tells us that John had died, and then he will continue on to tell us how that death took place. But here we find that there was quite a commotion being stirred up around Jesus. People's opinions varied greatly. Why Herod said it was John the Baptist. Others said that this was the prophet, or perhaps it was Elijah. But Jesus here is not only teaching the word of God, he's performing many miracles. He's even raised the dead at this point in the gospel. And yet we learn from John the Baptist that he did know miracles. He was a preacher of the gospel. God calls us to different ministries, whatever the ministry he calls us to. that is what we should apply ourselves to. For John, he was the proclaimer of Jesus at the first coming. His was to proclaim the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But John 10.41 tells us that John performed no sign. But all these things that he spoke about this man are true. So the people, the common people, recognized John didn't do miracles. But everything that John said about Jesus, they're true. But Herod heard of this man, Jesus, heard of the miracles that Jesus was doing and said, this has to be John the Baptist. Others said he was Elijah. And the reason they said this was Elijah, because remember I said that there's this heightened expectation of the Messiah coming. So they're not saying that Jesus is the Messiah. What they were saying that this is Elijah who would precede the Messiah's coming Coming from Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So Malachi's prophecy told of the necessity of Elijah coming before the day of the Lord. And some believe that Jesus was this Elijah. Jesus, though, said, 
that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In Matthew 17, 10 through 13, you can read about that there. But he said, Elijah is indeed coming. So Jesus told that first, John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah at my first coming. But then Jesus said there in Matthew 17, 10 through 13, he is indeed coming. Referring to his second coming that Jesus will send Elijah before his second coming who will restore all things. And just think about that as I was reading it from Malachi 4, verse 6, the ministry of Elijah. And think about this, how this is needed in our world today to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. We need Elijah today. Families are being destroyed in our nation and in the world today. We need the work of Elijah. Third, they said he is the prophet. Now, I'm reading from the New King James Bible, and uh, they translated this, the prophet. But there is no definite article in the Greek for them to actually rightly translate this, the prophet. Now, I agree that they are referring to the prophet, meaning the Messiah, and that's what that term means. But it comes from Deuteronomy 18.15, also Deuteronomy 18.18. I only put 18.15 in our notes today, but it's mentioned twice. If you want to go there, Deuteronomy 18.15 and also 18.18. But reading in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me in your, from your midst, and from your brethren, him you shall hear. And so Moses, talking about the anointed one, the Messiah, said, the Lord is going to raise up a prophet like me. Speaking about the anointed one. And so the New, Kings, New King James Version, uh, in their taking the Greek in this, inserted the the there. It's not in the original language. No definite article. But the meaning is the same in the sense of this is referring to the Messiah. They were saying, this is the prophet. This is the one that Moses prophesied about. And that's what they were referring to. So what the people were believing about John the Baptist, that he was, or about Jesus, and what the people were believing about Jesus, that he was John the Baptist, that he was Elijah, or perhaps that he was the prophet, the anointed one. Now back to John the Baptist, verses 16 through 18. When Herod heard it, he said, This is John whom I beheaded, and he is raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, because John has said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now in the Old Testament, there is um, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, that in the Old Testament, this is how the Old Testament worked it out, that if a brother was married to a woman and they had no offspring, no heir to carry on the brother's name and he died before they had a baby boy, an offspring, an heir, 
that then the next eldest brother could take her as his wife, become the goel, that's the Hebrew word for it, the kinsman redeemer, father a child for his brother, that child would then inherit his brother's stuff. And so the, take the name of the brother and not the actual father. So that is proper in the Old Testament. But this is not what happened with Herod. What happened with Herod here is that uh, Herod Antipas, in my notes I put Agrippa I, but that's wrong, Herod Antipas. He actually, um, let me read it here, Herodias, I was just looking wrong. Agrippa is right in the context that I have it. Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, the sister of Herod Agrippa I, the wife and niece of Herod Philip I. This gets really hard to track, but there was a lot of intermarrying going on here. So he was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. She was, Herodias, the granddaughter of Herod the Great, sister of Herod Agrippa I. We meet him in the book of Acts. The wife and niece of Herod Philip I. They had one child together, a good, a girl, according to Josephus, her name was Salome. Philip's half-brother, Herod Antipas, the Herod that we're talking about, met and seduced Herodias in Rome. They eloped, got married, but they were both married at the same time. So they first got married and then divorced their previous spouses. And so Herod Antipas married his niece, who was also his sister-in-law. It gets a little weird here. But this is why Philip, his brother, had not died. And John said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Why is it not lawful? Because the word of God says so. Leviticus 18:16. you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. She belongs to your brother. You're not to touch her. Or Leviticus 20, 21. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So even a curse, according to Leviticus 20, 21, went along with this. And according to history, I looked into this, Herod and Herodias never had children. So they did remain childless. In verses 19 and 20, Herodias held it against John the Baptist, wanted him killed, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man. He protected him, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Here's the twist of this whole thing. As twisted as Herod was, he had a heart for John the Baptist. He loved to hear John preach the gospel and even responded to the message of John and did many good things because of him. The sad side of that is that when he got out of John's influence and got back into Herodias' influence, all the good that John did in his preaching soured in the presence of his wife, Herodias. Herodias hated John, wanted him put to death, but Right now, Herod protected John. 
When he was exposed to the teaching and preaching of the word of God, it caused him to do many good things and liken to the parable of the sower. As I looked at this, Herod is like the seed that perhaps fell on the rocky or the thorny soil. They heard of the word of God with gladness. And yet when tribulation came, persecution came, the cares of this world came, the deceitfulness of richness, riches came. They caused them to stumble, to become unfruitful. But Herodias, she's like in the parable of the sower, and the seed went down, it fell on that hard, packed soil. And the birds came and snatched it up before there could be any root to bear any fruit. In John 5:24, Jesus said, Only those who hear my words and believe in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. And there's one thing that people can hear the word of God being proclaimed, but you have to believe, you have to receive Christ to come into that place of salvation. It's also noted by many that John and Herodias, John had his Herodias, his wicked queen that hated him. Like Elijah had Jezebel, a wicked queen that hated him. And both the wives were of kings who reigned over Israel. And those wives were both bad influences upon their husbands, caused them to do horrific things. And both sought the lives of the prophets who prophesied against them. So there came this opportune day in verses 21 through 23. Then an opportune day came when Herod was on his birthday and gave a feast for his nobles and the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. By the way, I'll just throw this in there, not in my notes, but Jehovah's Witness do not practice uh, celebrating birthdays or any kind of anniversaries or celebrations because they say in the Bible that every feast or celebration Bad things resulted from that. That's where they get this. They get it from right here. Can't celebrate a birthday because John the Baptist was beheaded on a birthday. So that's where it comes from. I'm not saying it's right, but that's where they get it from. The Jehovah's Witness are a cult, but they get that part of their belief system from a passage like this. So picking up in verse 22, that was a bonus. When Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced, she so pleased Herod and those who sat with him. The king said to her, ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you. So also swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to my half my kingdom. So Josephus puts a name on this girl. Her name is Salome, according to Josephus, as he wrote uh, the history of the Jews from Genesis up to the time of the fall of Jerusalem to A.D. 70. And uh, said that she was not only uh, the granddaughter of Simeon, the high priest, so there was this spiritual connection as well, that uh, many believe that the Greeks suggest that she gave a very seductive dance. Tradition says that she did the dance of the seven veils. Um, So think of some kind of belly dancing type thing being performed that he was so pleased, essentially kind of taken back by his stepdaughter that he said, whatever you want up to half the kingdom. So she went and uh, 
asked mom, what should I do? Mom said, verse 24, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And immediately, verse 25, she came in haste to the king and asked, what is it that I should give? And she said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. And immediately the king sent the executioner, commanded that his head be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought the head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took away the corpses and laid it in the tomb. So his disciples, the disciples of John the Baptist, buried the corpse, the body, but not the head. Herodias had the head. So kind of sick. Um, If you read it through the account, mom said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. The girl added the silver platter on there. So her own little twisted side of this. I'd read earlier from 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow. Herod had sorrow that he had said, Whatever you ask up to half is my kingdom. So this was actually an exaggerated pledge. In no way was he actually going to give her up to half the kingdom. If you remember Esther, uh, Xerxes I, whom she stood before as queen, he said the very same thing, up to half the kingdom. Now, that was just kind of this exaggerated kingly thing that they would say, but he felt compelled that he had to hold up to this because of what he said and because of those that he said it in front of. He had a godly sorrow, but it didn't produce repentance. He went along with this thing, had John's head taken from his body. So it's also a great reminder of those great lengths that people will go to close the mouth of those who speak the word of God. John the Baptist was speaking the truth. It's not lawful for you to have her And Herodias said, off with his head. Extra biblical history tells us that there was problems that arose between Herod's ex-father-in-law and uh, his first wife. And so ultimately, Herod was banished away from the Galilee and uh, Herodias was offered to go back to Rome, but she went with Herod and then soon died there afterwards. Godly sorrow brings about repentance that can lead to salvation, but sometimes it's just sorrow of the world and no salvation comes. Sometimes we can, like Herod, hear the teaching of the word of God It can move us to do good things, but it doesn't take us all the way to that place of salvation. And we need to go all the way with Jesus. So I want to close out as quickly as I can. And I'm just going to, you can jot these down and read them over. I know I have too much right here. So I'm going to try to speed this up by not reading the passages, but what I pulled out of the passages. But I'm going to tell you where I found these things. In one sense, this third point, I said, be like John. Now, we cannot be like John in the sense of, behold, the Lamb of God, it takes away the sin of the world. That was his role as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was unique in all of the Bible. He was a New Testament 
person who actually fit more with the Old Testament prophets. That was John's unique role that he had to introduce Jesus Christ. But we can be like John in many ways. As we learn about John in Luke 1, 13 through 17, we discover in that passage in Luke 1, 13 through 17, that his birth was an answer to prayer. And for many of us, uh, physically, maybe our births were answers to prayer. But I could tell you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you came to faith most likely because others were praying for you. Your birth spiritually is an answer to prayer. His name was John. In the Hebrew, it meant the Lord is gracious. And through salvation, uh, we can know the graciousness of God. Number three, he brought his parents joy and gladness and many rejoice because of his birth. And as believers, we can bring joy and gladness and cause many to rejoice because of the work of Jesus in our life. Number four, he was great in the sight of the Lord. And Jesus said that the least in the kingdom shall be great in the sight of God. That John was great, yes, but the least in the kingdom shall be great in the sight of God. Number five, John lived under the vow of a Nazarite. So he did not drink wine or strong drink. And we can choose to have a life without drugs and alcohol. I believe it's wise and honoring to do so. That's a personal opinion for me. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. As believers in Jesus Christ, our spiritual birth is connected with the Spirit of God working in our lives. But also we can be filled with the Spirit of God. Number seven, he turned the hearts of many of the children of Israel back to God. We can help turn people back to God. Number eight, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And we can come in the power of the Holy Spirit to minister to others. Number nine, he turned the hearts of children to their parents. We can do that today. One of the great desires I have, and I don't know how to accomplish this. Maybe together as a church we can figure this out, but I, I really have a heart for young men in our nation today. How can we turn them back to their parents, back to God? Number 10, he turned the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. We can do that same thing uh, to the wisdom of Jesus. Number 11, he made ready the people to, for the coming of Jesus, and we can make people ready Jesus is coming again. In Luke 1, verses 41 through 44, we learn more about him. That when Mary came and spoke, he's still in the womb of mom. When she heard the voice of Jesus' mother, the baby leaped with joy. And one day we will leap with joy at the hearing of the trump of Jesus. Number 13, the mother Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and others might be impacted because of the work of Christ in our lives. They may be influenced by the Spirit's work in their own lives. In Luke 1, 66, chapter 1, verse 66, we learn in number 14 that the hand of the Lord was upon him, and the hand of the Lord is upon those who believe in Jesus today. In Luke 1, 76 through 80, we find that he was called to be the prophet of the highest. And though we may not be prophets, we can be servants of the highest. We've been called to do that. He gave the knowledge of salvation to the people, the remission of sin. We can do that same thing. He gave light to those who sat in darkness. We can do that same thing. He guided people to the way of 
peace. We can guide people to the peace of Christ. He was strong in the spirit and we can become strong in the spirit today. He lived in the wilderness and we live in a wilderness of sin today. This world is a wilderness of sin. In Luke 3 verses 2 and 3, we learn that God's word was in him and we can hide God's word in our heart today. He preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin, and we need to preach that same message today. In Matthew 3, verses 1 through 6, we learn that his message was that of repentance. The kingdom of God is at hand, and we need to call people to repentance today. Well, his clothing was unique. That can be true for some. His diet was strange. That can also be true for some. His impact was widespread. Our impact will be measured when we get to heaven. In Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3, we learn that while he was in prison, he questioned faith. And sometimes we get in those situations where we have periods of difficulty that causes our faith to waver. That makes me so happy that uh, the Bible is so real in this regard that even John the Baptist had questions concerning Jesus. Matthew 11, 11, we learn that he was great upon this earth, but he who is the least in the kingdom will be greater than John. Matthew 21, 32, we learn that he came in the way of righteousness and we are to walk in the way of righteousness. He was, he called the depraved and the outcast to repentance and we are to call people to repentance through faith in Jesus Christ today. In John 1, verses 6 through 8, we learn that he was a man sent from God and God has commissioned us. We have it right here. The, go therefore, make disciples. We have been commissioned to go. Also, he bore witness of the light and we are to be light bearers of Jesus Christ in this world. In John 1, 15, um, although he was younger than, Jesus was younger than John, John knew that God had preferred Jesus above him, and Jesus is also preferred above us. In John 1, 29 through 34, we learn that he introduced the Messiah to the world. Behold, the Lamb of God, it takes away the sin of the world. We can introduce others to the Messiah. He saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus and remain, and we can have that testimony of God's Spirit in our lives and see it in others today as well. He testified that Jesus is the Son of God. We are to testify that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. In John 10, 41 through 42, we learn that he spoke truth concerning Jesus and many people believed. We need to hold to the truth of the Word of God regarding Jesus that others can rightly believe in him. Herod knew him as a just and holy man. We are to be just and holy people in this world that we live in. He was martyred for Jesus, and that could happen to some of us. God may call us to martyrdom. He's doing that in our world today. That's number 39. I told you it was a long list. While we never will hold up to the uniqueness of John's office as the forerunner of Christ, that list of 39... You might have to listen back to it because I went through it so quick. It's like, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. We can be like John in many ways. One of John's greatest characteristics 
was that he pointed others to Jesus. And Lord, help us to be like John. In our world today, Lord, that we would point others to Jesus. Our world needs our Savior in such a bad way in the sense, Lord, that that call to repentance of children, Lord, turning back to the having concern, compassion to their parents, parents having a concern, compassion toward their children. Lord, our families are being broken today, Lord. You are the great healer. So do your healing work in our midst this day, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.